Endless Hustle is presented by Victory Brewing Company and the Victory Monkeys. Check out Golden Monkey, a smooth 9.5% Belgian triple with notes of banana and cloves. Sour beer is more your thing? Pucker up with Sour Monkey, a 9.5% sour triple with fruity notes from imported Belgian yeast. Delicious 9.5% ABV beers that don't taste like 9.5% beers? The Victory Monkeys just hit different. Check out the Victory Monkeys at victorybeer.com to find Golden Monkey and Sour Monkey at retailers near you. All right, Endless Hustlers, we are back. Episode 120 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. Your host, as always, Arthur K., the modern day Dick Clark. Um, Dick Clark's probably rolling around in his grave after I said that. R.I.P. Dick Clark, one of the greatest. We got two incredible dudes on the show. We've joined by Catfish's Neve Shulman. He's got a new collaboration with Zell to help stop financial cyber attacks. Actually, really cool, relevant stuff. Who better, who better to help with that stuff than the king of catfish? And then we're finishing up the episode with the modern-day Hugh Hefner, the king of social media, the man who is followed by tens of millions all over the web and who lives one of the craziest lifestyles imaginable. And we're jumping into it for an hour. It's incredible. You guys are going to love this. Dan Bilzerian's on the show. Let's jump right in. The king of catfish, Mr. Neve Shulman. All right, we got a great day on the Endless Hustles. I'm joined by the king of the catfish universe and a man who's now working with Zell to help us not get catfished financially. Pretty cool stuff. What a what a great just symbiosis of bringing brands and concepts together. I love it, Neve. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I was felt like I'd been waiting a long time for someone to say, hey, why don't you help get people talking about how to get smarter and not get scammed financially the same way that you've been helping them sort of wise up about not getting scammed emotionally. So it's a perfect fit. I mean, that's the thing. I was thinking about this. You can literally apply catfishing to any aspect of life. Like you should be selling catfish services to like, we have now financial services engaging, but there's a gajillion more. It's like, are you getting catfished in this? Are you getting catfished in that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true, especially with all of us now, you know, sort of learning how to use our phones to do everything and, and changing the way we, we transfer money and even what money is and NFTs and crypto. I mean, it's like there's so much new information and, and, and we're all trying to catch up. And unfortunately, that also means there's a lot of vulnerability and misinformation. So uh, as much as I can be the face of uh, truth and, and facts, the, I'm happy to do it. So let's talk about what you're doing with Zell. I'll kind of throw the ball to you because I'm sure you're going to do a much more effective job of explaining <laughs> it than I am. So what did, tell me about this partnership. I mean, basically, for the past 10 years, people have been coming to me with their situations and questions and concerns about online relationships. Um, but mixed in with that, I've had a lot of people come to me with questions uh, regarding uh, scams, uh, how, how, to, how to get out of them, how to perhaps um, correct them once you've been scammed is what can you do? What are your resources? And I haven't really known what to say. I haven't really had the answer. Um, so the idea for me personally was I want to learn uh, how to be smarter. I want to, I want to know what the red flags are to look out for and what to do if and when I, I feel compromised. And then much like I do on the show, create content that people can watch and, and, and hopefully will empower them and give them the tools they need to do the same thing. 
So the idea is we're going to make these videos. Uh, right now we're doing a, just a sort of series of four videos, each of which addresses uh, some of the more typical uh, situations that, that the everyday person will find themselves in, uh, in terms of potentially getting scammed and what you should and should not do when in those situations. It's crazy to think, man, Catfish is now like over a decade old, starting yeah. with the movie, the TV show. The TV show is like, it's actually probably on the iconic scale for MTV at this point. Is it crazy to look back from the beginning to now, three kids later, dancing with the stars later, to think about what's happened with this whole thing? Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, I don't miss an opportunity almost every day to sort of reflect on the, the good fortune I've had uh, to have been able to experience something that, you know, while at one, in, on one hand was heartbreaking, uh, but on the other hand was, a, was an opportunity that I was able to take advantage of. And, and then I still get to make this show, which not only do I love making, but I genuinely feel is helpful to people and, and empowers them, not just to, you know, confront their fears and, and be more honest and open with, with, you know, their feelings, but also, you know, equips them with some tools they can use to hopefully avoid getting taken advantage of or, or feeling that heartbreak for themselves. So it's pretty amazing that I, that I really do get to do something I love that is, for the most part, internationally seen and accepted as a really positive uh, thing that, that has helped a lot of people. Take me back to the beginning when the movie first launches and people start becoming aware of this term and what's happening and you help bring it to the fourth for light. What was it like in the beginning when the story came out and the show started? I mean, it was pretty wild for me. I, you know, I, I didn't really have any ambitions of a career in entertainment. Um, I was actually more sort of behind the camera as a producer and, and photographer. Uh, and to all of a sudden be the person that everyone was opening up to and, and looking to to tell their stories or, or to get help with their situations was a, a bit overwhelming at first. Um, but what I quickly learned was it was a necessary uh, role that someone had to take. Um, and obviously the opportunity to, to do something constructive with it and also, you know, get a great job was fantastic. And, and what's actually weirdly very similar now uh, is I feel very much like the conversation I'm having about scams um, at this moment, it has a lot of parallels to sort of what I was feeling back then when it came to sort of getting catfished because so many people right now are getting scams. Um, I think in a study they did, in a survey they did, uh, 25% of the people who responded said that they had been the victims of some form of financial scam. And that 50% of the people said they knew someone who had been the victim of a scam. And I think similarly, people don't want to really talk about it. They're embarrassed. They're uncomfortable. They feel foolish. Um, and so what I'm discovering, especially after posting that first video, is that people started DMing me, much like they did back in 2010, saying, oh, my God. I got scammed, I lost money, my, my mom just lost money or something happened to her. And all of a sudden I'm realizing that there's a, there's a major conversation here that we're not having, that we need to be having so that we can all you know, be a bit more informed and savvy and, and hopefully uh, protected against this stuff. 
When did you realize the show was a hit? When did you realize something special was happening? I think, I mean, there were a couple moments. The, 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 the probably the biggest one was, it was during season one when, um, without any warning uh, on a Saturday uh, e evening, um, I, people started calling me saying, oh my God, uh, Adam Levine just spoofed you on Saturday Night Live. They did a catfish spoof and Adam Levine played you. Um, and, to, and then that was, and I didn't know what was happening and I quickly went and found it all. I mean, it was like, that was wild. That, that when SNL sort of spoofed the show, I think that was when we knew we, we must have done something right. <laughs> Did you imagine the longevity that would occur though? I mean, listen, a decade plus in television world is right. like 86 years in dog years, right? Like yeah. it's like forever. Did you ever imagine that it would go this long? No, no. I mean, I, I for me, it was season one was exciting. And, and, and if there was a season two, that would be awesome. But I know how rare that is. Or I, I knew at the time that that was very un, unusual. And yeah, here we are now kind of, vaguely in what some might say is season sort of 11 or 12 but technically it's eight i don't know it's confusing but it is it is great and and it has afforded me so many great opportunities um like you mentioned dancing with the stars and uh and that's and, and honestly and, and i'm just so honored that i i get to maintain this role kind of offering guidance uh both emotional and technical to people um through the show and that that, that to me is Again, not something I ever necessarily set out as an ambition to sort of be this uh, compass for both moral and and you know social media uh, correctness, but it works and I love it, and and that's why I'm kind of looking to expand that and keep keep that going in new places, and so that's that's what this cell thing is all about. You just ran the New York City Marathon. Congratulations. What a what a beast that thing is. And it's just incredible. Anybody who's able to finish that thing, I'm like in awe because I can barely run a mile these days and I'm in pretty decent shape. But it got me thinking, you at this point have become an iconic New Yorker. I'm a Philly transplant who moved to New York a decade ago. And I always tell people that New York helped shape me as a person, both personally and professionally. You're a lifelong New Yorker. What is it about New York for you that in, in which it's helped shape you both personally and professionally shape the direction of your life and influence it? Wow. Um, well, the, there's some couple, couple versions of that. I think, you know, one of course is my, my ability to experience the arts growing up um, and to be surrounded by such fantastic institutions, Lincoln Center, Juilliard, um, just sort of the, the downtown off-Broadway theater scene uh, and having parents who, who were eager and, and open to taking me to all kinds of shows and, and encouraging me to, to dance and go to musical theater school. And I mean, like, you know, I, I'm just very lucky to be in and around that energy. Um, but I also think, you know, on a, on a somewhat more uh, visceral level, New York City is a... I don't know how, what what the what the uh, parental guidance rating is for this podcast. Fire it's, away. A mother, it's a motherfucker. I mean, it's it's a tough place to be. It's 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 unforgiving. You know, there's 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 no space for like relaxation or 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 laziness. It's you're it's a raging river, and you've got to you know strap in and and swim 
for your life the second you walk out your door. And, and that, I think that energy and that, that excitement and that unexpected chance that occurs every day, and you have to kind of be prepared and, and willing to say yes and, and completely change your plans and, and just sort of go with it, that, that oh, I think prepares you in a weird way to take life on and, and be willing to say yes to things and, and dive head first. Um, and I, I'm, I think that has served me well in, in my life. When you were growing up in the arts, was there a moment for you where you realized that was your passion and that was actually going to be your career direction? Yeah, I mean, I, I still think, or rather, I, I still feel strongly that I should have really been in the sort of performing arts as a lifelong career. Um, I do feel like that's where my passions most strongly lie, but for whatever reason, my, my interest or commitment or dedication or willingness to sort of really apply myself uh, to achieve that level in, in that field wasn't there uh, at the sort of key stages of my life when you would need to be uh, focusing on that. Um, but my interest in dance and my, my passion for, for, for music all sort of guided my career paths and, and led me to photography and filmmaking and introduced me to friends and and I can go back and trace a very kind of clear path uh, that led from the arts to my friendships that then turned into my photography and getting catfished because my pictures were in a newspaper and then the movie you know like there's there's it all sort of when you look back you can say oh wow yeah that, that all kind of fits together uh, and and weirdly put me in the right position at the right moment to make that decision to do that thing and it worked out. I was talking to Barbara Corcoran last week from Shark Tank, and she has just such an incredible story. And her, she herself has become an iconic New Yorker. But she was telling this great story about when she first came to New York, walking by a newsstand. And here's this like out of town girl trying to make it. And she's kind of like, oh, my God, I'm in New York. And at that moment, she realized she was a New Yorker. What was your New York moment where you kind of looked around or experienced something and felt like, man, this is my city. I'm part of the organism. Wow. Um, I mean, I've obviously had a lot of those moments because I've just always been in New York City. Um, oh, I recently actually, I have a perfect example. Um, last year, when lockdown started, uh, I took my wife and our two kids to our home here in Los Angeles, um, where we come often, but usually not for very long periods of time, but we were fortunate to have it to kind of be here for quarantine and have a bit more space. And um, we were here for about seven months. We got back to, we went back to New York City last fall and things were sort of opening up a bit and, and whatever, cases were, were down so you could do indoor dining. And um, I remember we went to a restaurant for the first time sometime sort of late last fall. And as we were leaving, uh, I had asked to take some of my leftovers to go. And they brought them in two small containers. And it was, you know, the restaurant was busy. It was small, it was, you know, tight. And you kind of had to walk through the area where they get the food from the kitchen to get out to the, you know, like it's a small New York City restaurant. And I didn't have a bag for, for my two to-go containers. 
And our waiter, who was now standing at the sort of window to the kitchen, getting orders ready, and had also just answered the phone and was on the phone taking like a delivery order. I see him and I, I start to walk over to him. And I'm telling you, before I can even get the question out, before I even was able to say, excuse me, can I get a bag? He must have just, from his peripheral vision, seen that I was holding the three goats containers and beginning to motion towards him. And with his one free hand, reached behind his back, grabbed a bag off of the like hanger and just handed it to me. Didn't even look at me, just handed it to me, just knew. He knew what I needed. He couldn't have been busier, but he figured out a way to get to me. And in that moment, I was like, this is why I love New York. There's a caliber of, of, of just awareness and like amazingness that you have to have in order to, like, to perform well in this city. And that guy has it. And I love that. Um, and it was just a great moment where I was reminded how special it is to be in New York and, 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 and the people that make it so great. How do you start dealing with fame? Once people start watching Catfish, it becomes a monster hit. Now you've become some level of celebrity, quasi-celebrity, whatever it is, right? MTV fame is enormous. How do you start dealing with that once it hits? I mean, I, how do I, I don't know how, how one deals with it. I know that for me, I dealt with it, um, you know, in some ways well and in other ways a little bit less well it was you know it's tough to have people kind of expect a level of excitement from you and and willingness to kind of perform for them when when it comes to stopping you in public um and wanting to take a photo uh you know and for the most part i'm very lucky people tend to to like me uh, I'm not a, I'm not a disliked celebrity, um, which is great. I don't, I can't imagine what it would be like if people were unhappy to see me, uh, out in public. Um, but, you know, learning to embrace that, the, the, the good fortune I've had to, to make my show and to have people enjoy it and to have them be excited to meet me and to just be very willing and happy to give them that one or two or 10 minutes that they will then sort of take with them and will make their day and, and give them something meaningful to talk about um, is a real gift. It's super special and it feels great. And I'm constantly kind of getting affirmations from people all the time. Like, Hey, great show. Love your show. Thanks like, for doing what you do. Um, and whatever slight inconvenience that might um, have in the moment is it, far outweighed by the overwhelming kind of positivity that it brings into my life. Um, but again, I'm like you said, kind of quasi-celeb so I don't deal with the insane paparazzi and pressure and and watchful eye of of the world the way that some of the kind of top celebrities do so I don't know how that would feel and I don't really want to know how that would feel um I, I get to pretty much live my life as an ordinary person so I'm, I'm very very grateful for that in this decade since Catfish premiered Obviously, technology, everything has changed. I mean, I, I'm 43, man. I see what these little kids are doing with their Finstas and all this other shit that I learn about. I'm like, man, it's like crazy out there. Now that you're married, you have three kids. Do you, is, it, is it hard to keep up with the trends and what's happening now versus where you started a decade ago? Yeah, I mean, it is hard. Um, and, and I think especially for kids, you know, younger, the younger generation, whether it's Gen Z or millennials, um, their whole life now is sort of tethered to their cell phone. 
um, as is their sort of personality and self-identity. Uh, and that's tough. I don't, you know, I mean, I, I, we sort of, sort of know what that feels like, but, but they just have it organically kind of built into their experience of life. Um, and as a result, they're, they're using social media to get information, uh, and find out all kinds of things. Um, you know, and to tie it back to Zell, like that's where young people are getting both good and bad information about best practices when it comes to living their lives, you know, as young adults in terms of, you know, their jobs, their, you know, information about banking and all this, you know, all this stuff that, that sort of we're trying to address in, in this campaign. So the idea for me is like, young people need some sage advice. I, 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 I'm, I'm grateful that I have considered someone that they trust. Um, I've, I've, I've worked hard to earn that trust. And if I can find a practical application of that through this campaign to kind of put some good positive information out there to give young people uh, some tips and tools to keep their finances uh, secure, then I'm thrilled to do that. I also love you're doing the videos on TikTok, which as someone who's not on TikTok, but I understand the power of TikTok. I get it. Yeah. How, what do you think of TikTok in general? This is like the new social media platform. It's not even new anymore, but it's the platform yeah. now. What do you think as, as old men ourselves, what do you think of the whole TikTok generation? I mean, look, I, I like that it is a mostly sort of, it's a platform that tends to promote music and movement you know there's a lot of dance and, and song on the app um which again i think just speaks to the power of the arts whether you think of it that way or not like that's why the app is working because uh people like to see people dance and they like to hear music um so so in that way i find that it's a, a good creative platform for people to to express themselves you know i think like anything else there's a lot of boneheads and and silly stuff on there um, and it can be a, an easy place to lose, lose track of time and waste, waste a lot of time. Um, but it's also a fun place to share ideas and, and to have unexpected, uh, talent be discovered. Uh, I have a really good friend who has been a performance artist for 25 years and he did a commercial for Starburst 20 years ago where he came up with this like weird character called the little lad and some young tiktok guy who has a haircut similar to the one that my friend had in that commercial kept people kept telling him oh you look like the little lad well he made a video side by side with the picture of my friend from 20 years ago the video started trending my friend got on tiktok now he's got over 2 million subscribers he's he just got a new starburst tiktok campaign he's got an article in the new york times and he's making money like again with this weird character from 20 years ago it's great it's it's there's there's some really great stories and things that come from it for sure dude this has been awesome as a zell user myself unfortunately all the time which means money's coming out of my account most <laughs> of the time i love everything you're doing and i think financial literacy and just protection is such an important conversation right now before i let you go final question is you must have seen some crazy catfish shit over these years What's the craziest, the, the Mount Rushmore at the top of the Mount Rushmore <laughs> catfish that you've seen or heard about? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, people often ask me this uh, and I've never thought to say it, but I, I really feel like I've still not seen the craziest. I'm sure that there, there are wild stories yet undiscovered. 
Um, and we're filming one right now that's, that's already off to a pretty wild start. But, uh, you know, to, to, to me, I think I'll, I'll probably always feel like my catfish experience was the wildest and, and I think in some ways kind of the most eye-opening um, just because it, it was so dynamic and, and so uh, elaborate. I mean, the, the number of characters that, that the woman created and, and the phone numbers and the artwork and the, the lies that she came up with were, and the music, I mean, there were so many elements to it. Um, and so for me, that's, that's, I think that's still the number one uh, wild kind of catfish scenario that I've, that I've seen. I mean, some of that shit's crazy out there. I'm like, it's terrifying to be online these days. Congrats, Neve. Always great to chat with you. Congrats on the campaign with Zell, man. Thanks, Arthur. Take care, brother. All right, folks, that was Neve Shulman. Make sure to check out this incredible collaboration we talked about with Zell. I mean, listen, we're in an age right now where crazy stuff is consistently happening. And whether your accounts are being hacked, whether your social media is being hacked, look at me, I'm doing like a live ad for Zell. But I think what Neve is doing with Zell is absolutely fantastic. So make sure to check it out. Really cool stuff. Next up, an hour of the modern day Hugh Hefner, the king of Instagram, the one, the only Mr. Dan Bilzerian. We're talking all about his company Ignite, which he pivoted. And it's it's pretty fascinating to hear about the pivot because it went from losing a ton of money to actually being profitable. And he's kind of building an empire right now. And then he's got a new book called The Setup, detailing the journey of all journeys. Pretty, pretty crazy stuff. So I think you guys are just going to go nuts over this hour. Get ready. Here he is, Dan Bilzerian. All right, we've got a great day on The Endless Hustle as I'm joined by the man, the myth, the legend, the one and only Dan Bilzerian. Dan, I mean, you really are. your legendary status at this point. It's crazy, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's been a crazy ride. Did you, uh, did you end up reading the book? So I'm just starting the book. The reason that I'm beyond dying to get through it is because of that page six article, pretty much saying that nobody would publish a thing and you had to publish it yourself. And I'm like, when I read something like that, I'm like, I'm in, I'm diving full blown in. Yeah. It's pretty honest, man. I think you'll like it. Talk to me about, and I want to turn back the clock. Talk to me about the beginning of this whole journey. When does it begin for you in your mind? Like when does the moment that Dan Bilzerian become Dan Bilzerian? Um, well, I mean, Interesting. Um, like kind of the, you know, the Dan Bilzerian that everybody knows, kind of like the public persona, I would say probably like 2011, 12-ish, maybe something like that. Yeah, it's kind of like when, when you know, I was like slowing down. Well, I was kind of like still going crazy with the poker stuff, but I started slowing down, I think in like 2014 and focused more on you know, the partying and, you know, kind of like capturing some of that for social media. So yeah, it's been, it's been probably almost like 10 years now. It's crazy. Your story is so well documented, but you start with the poker stuff. When you start the partying part of it, do you realize that there's a brand to be built? Do you realize like you could actually take what you were doing from a social life perspective and begin to not only gain followers, but also monetize it? 
Um, well, originally when I kind of like started doing it, um, documenting the whole thing, it was really just to get laid with less effort. Um, there wasn't really much thought, you know, for the monetary side, I just made a crazy amount of money playing poker. And, um, yeah, that was kind of like the last thought in my mind. It was more just like get laid with ease and kind of like have the access and, um, you know, and, and it was just, uh, yeah, it was not not really on the radar. It, was, it wasn't until like around 2016-ish that I started thinking about monetizing it. Um, and I started Ignite shortly thereafter just because um, I had just gotten into a relationship and I was kind of like, I've been going super hard for a while. And I realized that even after the relate, like even like eight months into the monogamous relationship, not really doing too much crazy shit, like everything was still um you know i like i still had all these people coming up to me and i was realized that it wasn't just going to shut off so kind of figured if i had to be taking pictures in a fucking parking lot in 10 years and i didn't monetize it i'd probably regret it so i think it was probably around like 2016 17 that i decided to like probably do something with it you know every red-blooded american male looks at your instagram page and i mean it's kind of like you're the modern day hugh hefner at this point you're like the instagram hugh hefner how does it begin where you can start getting all these girls? Like, is it, I, I, I've tried to like figure this thing out in my head. Is it like promoters are throwing them at you? Like what, how did this all begin where all the women just started flocking to you? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's all in the book. You know, I started kind of, I think probably in college was the first time I started actually getting like a decent amount of girls in the military, not, not much at all. And then before that, not a ton either. So it's kind of, you know, when I went to college and I joined a fraternity and we would have these parties and it was every sorority on campus would come to the party. And I started seeing like the ratio, how important that was. And I was also a little bit older. I was 22 because I just got on the military, done four years in the military. So um, I had that advantage, you know, nobody really wants to bang the freshman guy. So um, at 22 and haven't been in the military for four years. Um, yeah, I was just kind of like ready to focus more on, on the school and the girls and all that. And that's when I started getting laid, um, probably a disproportionate amount of times was college. Yeah. But it's one thing to actually be getting laid a bunch, which a bunch of us have had happen. And then, then it's another thing to end up on islands with 30, 40, 50 of the most beautiful women on the freaking planet. And then you see the next Instagram picture. It's a new 30 or 40 or 50. Yeah, I started up in the bar for sure. Um, I would say it was probably craziest around 2015, 16. I would say that was probably like, I would say that was kind of the height of it because I was partying a lot. And I wasn't super worried about the social media stuff. I didn't have a company. I was just kind of like focused on partying and getting laid and having fun. And it was all new, you know, it was like, kind of like I was, I just become famous and people, you know, were coming up to me and it was, you know, it was like hosting clubs and doing all that shit. Um, and I, and like the novelty hadn't really worn off. It was still fun. You know, we we're still just, you know, going out and fucking seeing what it was like to kind of be a rock star and all that. And um, then when I started ignite, it was, it was more girls. And I think we like up the, up the volume and the intensity and stuff, you know, like, like you said, you know, being on a private Island with, you know, 20 girls or whatever it was. And then yacht with 30 and, you know, we kept like up in the bar, up in the bar. Um, and it was, you know, it actually, I got to the point where it was like, actually like too much. Like I liked it when it was like a little bit less girls and it wasn't so fucking crazy because I could still like do what I wanted with, 
Whereas when I had like 30 girls, especially when I was dating a lot of them, I just felt like my energy was being like pulled in so many different directions. It was just like a lot of obligation. Um, and I actually didn't really even have that good of a time, to be honest, when I was like on that yacht with like 30 chicks, it was just too much. Um, I'd like taken it to a level where it was like more was not better, which was interesting. I didn't think I'd ever get there. So at what point do you realize you're famous? Like when we think about fame, we think about Leo and Brad Pitt and Cruz and these mega A-listers. But I guarantee if I were to walk around New York, where I live, and ask, who is Dan Bilzerian? I would probably get as much recognition for who you are versus who those guys are. At what point did that fame begin to materialize and it became present where you understood it was there? Well, I mean, I, I definitely don't think I'm as much of a household name as like Brad Pitt or some of those guys. I actually think I might be more recognizable though. And I think um, people would also probably feel more comfortable coming up to me. Um, and I think it's probably crazier in foreign countries for me. But in the US, I would have to believe that, you know, Leo would get fucking more attention. It's one of those things also that like I'm easily recognizable too because I've got a very distinct look. And when that first person comes up, then the second person and the third, and it's like kind of like this fucking, you know, um, snowball effect where then everybody's like coming up, people that don't even know who the fuck you are coming up because they see so many other people, um, which is also like kind of a weird thing. But, and I've had that happen, but I think it was like 2014 when it, I, well, I know it was, it was like a very distinct moment. I was in Cannes and I talk about this in the book. Um, and I went to a, some like bar club or whatever. And some people started coming up to me and I hadn't really like left my house too much before that. And so I hadn't really seen the effects of it. And I remember Ron Perlman's manager came over and asked me like, Oh, like could Ron come over and say hi? And I was like, yeah, like, of course he could come over and say hi. Like, you know, and so he comes over and he's pitching me on this movie idea that he has. And people keep coming up to me like fucking, I mean, it must've been 15 people in the middle of his pitch. And finally somebody came up and asked him for a picture. And he was like, Oh, like, do you want a picture with me? You sure you don't want a picture with this guy? And this was like, when I was like first kind of like people were knowing who I was. It's like right before I did that Howard Stern interview. And it was just like, it was such a weird fucking thing for me because I, you know, for me, I was just like fucking around, like posting some shit online. Like they, you know, those right after I like threw the porn star off the roof. So that got a lot of traction. And what I found is like the international press would actually do a ton. So I'd get like a daily mail article or a TMZ and then everybody around the world would then pick up that same article. And so I, I ended up like 80% of my following is outside the U S and I think it's due in part to, you know, all the international press more so than the social media stuff. And like I said, when I was in Cannes, it was just fucking crazy, man. I fucked like 14 chicks in 12 days, which at the time for me was like a really big deal later. It didn't, you know, it wasn't so fucking impressive. But at the time I was just like, man, that's a lot, you know? And I remember like that, that figure and it was, you know, all new chicks. It was like, you know, girls that, you know, would meet in the club and a bunch of, you know, European models and stuff. And I had sex with a girl out talking to her. I mean, it was just like, that trip was a big milestone thing for me. I like had sex with a girl in a bathroom, like stone sober in the afternoon, you know, it was just like, I was like, kind of like pushing the boundaries of what I could get away with. And I found like, you know, the more confidence I had and the more crazy shit that I tried, the more stuff that just worked. And like I said, I literally had sex with a girl that saying one fucking word to her. I mean, it was like, I don't know, man. That was a very, very crazy thing for me at the time. There's so many areas of your life I want to explore. The first place that I want to start is the military training. You decide you want to become a Navy SEAL. I've talked to other people who have tried the Navy SEAL training and it's pretty much hell on earth. 
When you end up going in the military, walk me through that experience. Well, I just gotten thrown in jail. Uh, I had a gun in my car in Utah. And so I got thrown in jail for like 21 days and then kicked out of the state of Utah. And so I wasn't able to graduate my senior year and I had to get a GED. And that was kind of like the catalyst for sending me into the military. It was like community college, you're going to the military. And my dad had done that. My dad was a um, you know, was in Vietnam as an officer and like stationed in the Green Beret unit and this whole thing. And then he ended up getting into Stanford and got into Harvard and he was a high school dropout. So I was like, oh, you know, well, if it were for dad, it could work for me kind of thing. And um, yeah, I just, you know, I'd watched the movie Navy Seals. It seemed like it was a fucking cool thing to do. And uh, and yeah, so that's what I did. I joined the military, went went to Bud's and, um, you know, fucking had about three goes at it. And uh, like I made it one day before graduation and ended up getting kicked out. And um, at the time I thought it was like the shittiest thing that ever happened to me, but I guess, you know, later on it turned out to be um, a blessing in disguise. How brutal is that Navy SEAL training? I mean, I've heard horror stories, but how really brutal is it? I mean, it's pretty shitty. I, you know, the first time I went through, I actually started training with stress fractures um, and I wasn't on the steroids and, about three weeks after hell week, I was just, I mean, I was just fucking debilitated, you know, like running on stress fractures. It just gets more and more painful. And, um, and I wasn't recovering. And so, yeah, that was a fucking nightmare, man. That was probably the shittiest thing I'd ever done. I was 18. I was like, hadn't ever run more than two miles. I was inexperienced. I was immature. You know, I wasn't in great shape. It was, I was broken. I mean, it was just like literally the worst case scenario. My class didn't like me. The instructors didn't like me. I mean, it was just like, you couldn't have come up with a worse scenario. And then when I went back the second time, I was fucking juicing. I was fucking in good shape. I'd already done hell week. I was 20 years old. Like I had confidence. It was just like a fucking night and day difference. Um, but going through the first time natural broken was, I mean, I, I can't think of anything harder. So you move away from the seals and from the military, you're broken kind of at that point what's going through your head about the next steps of your life? How are you kind of figuring out what's going to happen next? Well, I mean, I did my four years, you know, I got an honorable discharge and then I went to college. So I wasn't like, I was bummed out, but I did 510 days of fucking SEAL training. Like I completed two hell weeks. I was one day before graduation. So like in my eyes, I'd like done it, you know, like, I, like, yeah, like I got kicked out. I didn't get to try it and whatever, but like, I don't like, I really did it to like prove to myself and my dad and everybody that I could do it. Um, I didn't really care so much about like actually being in the military or whatever. Um, so while I didn't fucking get the bird or whatever in my mind, like I had proven that I was fucking tough enough. I had done like probably more seal training than almost any other fucking guy that went through. I mean, Goggins did like three, three runs through, but most people like do not do 510 fucking days of training. Like it's a six month course. So, um, you know, I just, I don't know, man. I, I like, I, I definitely built some confidence from it. I mean, I was fucking bummed out, but going to college at 22 after doing all that shit was probably a night and day difference than if I had just gone in at 18, you know? How does the poker playing begin? When do you realize you're a good poker player? Um, it started in college. My brother taught me how to play and, you know, I was fucking gambling. I had some fraternity brothers. It's kind of like at the beginning of when poker, began and or when, when like the poker rush began you know like they had rounders had just come out chris moneymaker won the world series off of 25 bucks i mean it was like every asshole and their mother 
you know, saw this fucking idiot win the World Series and went like, well, if this fucking guy can win, I can win. You know, he's like fucking wearing a fishing hat and drinking a beer. And, you know, I don't know. I just, you know, he was probably the best thing to ever happen to poker. And so I got it at the right time. There wasn't really any training programs back then. Um, and, you know, I wasn't great initially and I ended up going broke. And I think going broke and having to like crawl out of that hole gave me the discipline to play good. And then by about, I don't know, 2007, I was, I was pretty damn good. I put in a fucking crazy amount of volume and um, yeah, I was, I was, you know, probably one of the, one of the better poker players at the time. I want to talk rounders with you because it's one of my fucking favorite movies, man. I fucking love that movie. I've probably seen it 200 times. I would say at least. <laughs> Have you ever gotten to talk to Damon or Malkovich or Koppelman or any of the main players around it? Because you have become a famous face of poker. Have they ever either approached you or vice versa? And you've gotten to just chat about the movie. No, the closest I got to that was um, Brett Ratner was with Ed Norton and can, and they text me. Um, I'll never forget. It was, it's actually in, in the vignette that he did for my book. And he said something about like me trouncing the game of life and, you know, whatever, mad respect. And I just thought that was pretty fucking cool. Um, but no, I, I never, um, I never played poker with any of those guys or, or met up with them. I mean, I, uh, yeah, we, we had, we had some famous guys in there, just nobody from rounders. So obviously if, if anyone's ever seen the movie Molly's game, it really shows you kind of that underground Hollywood poker circuit. Did you ever get to participate in any of that? Or were you at tables with Toby Maguire, Leo, Ben Affleck, any of the, the big players that were known to have played during that era? Yeah, no, I played with those guys. I played in her game. She did a vignette for my book. It's actually in there. Um, and so, yeah, I actually wrote the, I helped her write the first chapter of her book too. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was, it was a great movie. It was in a very accurate depiction of, of who she was. And I thought that the, I forget whoever, whatever actress they got to play her, but the fucking girl did a great job. You know, it was like that, that's who she was. You know, she was like super sharp, like cold calculated. Um, she ran a good game and um, unfortunately things did not work out for her, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was probably one of the best games in LA she had you know, Toby was playing all the time and yeah. Yeah. The, the, so the actress was Jessica Chastain, by the way, but what were those games like when you're sitting there and you got Toby, you got Affleck, you got all these fucking a plus listers. What are those games actually like? Are they intense? Are they fucking people are laughing? Are, are people starstruck? What is it actually like at that table? Um, I mean, everybody's kind of trying to win, you know, there's people fucking around like this guy, Bradley Ruderman, he was, you know, he actually ended up getting indicted for some Ponzi scheme thing, but not before he ended up losing like 8 million or something in the fucking game. And, you know, you'd have guys like that in there just fucking dusting off money. And then you had guys like Toby playing super tight, trying to win. And um, then you had a bunch of hot chicks running around. I mean, it was kind of like, it, it was, it was, the closest thing to like a movie poker game, you know what I mean? Like when you watch poker in the movies and you get the hot chicks and the fucking, you know, slinky black dresses and everybody's kind of like at the table and you got the business guys and people smoking cigars. It was like literally like kind of like a movie poker game. Most poker games are like quiet. Everybody's like fucking dead serious. And this was more like a kind of like a Hollywood poker game type of thing. But people were focused on the game. I mean, we're playing for big money. You know, people were like we're more focused on the game and the girls and all the rest of the shit. Like it, it didn't really distract many people 
playing that game. When you would take money off of a Toby or an A-lister, what's that feeling like? Like, would it be like, fuck you, Spider-Man? Like, what were some of the fun shit that ended up getting said or happened during those games? You know, to be honest, I, I don't really remember beating Toby out of fucking any money that comes to mind. I mean, I'm sure I did, um, but he was pretty tight. You know, like if he was in the hand, like he usually had something. He wasn't fucking around too much. He was like there to earn. Um, and I think he was probably capitalizing off, you know, his, his image and his, you know, like you said, A-list status, whatever. Um, but yeah, I think people played bad against him. Um, he would also like try and like negotiate deals and talk to people in the hands and shit. And, um, I don't know, uh, you know, I never really like fell for any of that bullshit, but there's, there, you know, there's a lot of people there that were just playing for fun. Like I was there to make a fucking, you know, make money. I was there to fucking earn, you know, same as him. Um, but there's a lot of the guys there just playing recreationally for fun or, you know, guys like Bradley Ruderman who almost like wanted to fucking lose because, you know, he would lose all this fucking money and people are like, God damn, like how rich is this fucking guy? And he would be like, Oh, I'm, you know, I, but I manage a hedge fund and the hedge fund is crushing. And so he actually got, I think a lot of guys in the game to give him money for his hedge fund, which turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. But, um, I think part of his, you know, wanting to play was just literally to like advertise of how rich he was. Cause you know, when you could go into a game and lose a half a million dollars and it doesn't fucking phase you, you know, you gotta have decent amount of fucking money. Right. So I think, you know, like I said, his was more for like networking and advertising. And I think there were some other rich business guys that were probably in the same boat. Um, so. So there's a great story in the book about how you made $50 million in one year playing poker. When you make that kind of fucking money, 50 million is not chump change, obviously. And you talk about talked earlier today about how you were broke at one point. Now that you got 50 million, does the, how does the mindset change at that point? How do you go from being the broke Dan Bilzerian to now, shit, I'm a multimillionaire? Well, I mean, it was a slow progression. You know, I went broke and then I went to a fucking gambling boat and I turned 10, you know, 500, it was like 750 bucks. I sold three guns and turned that into 10 grand and then took the 10 grand flew to Vegas with a one-way ticket and turned that into 187 grand playing like three weeks straight at the Bellagio, like every fucking day grinding it out. And then when I came back, then I had like some, you know, newfound confidence and some discipline and, um, you know, and I, and I built up the bankroll, you know, but it, it took a while. I mean, that was, you know, you gotta understand that was like 2004, I wasn't playing these fucking million dollar fucking monster games until probably like 2013, 2012 ish. So, you know, it took a while. I mean, I had to, like I said, I had to build a bankroll, you know, I played private games, played Cassavetti's game, um, played some in the, in the casinos. I ended up moving to Vegas. I mean, it was like a whole thing. I mean, it was like literally my life. Like I was playing poker probably like 14 hours a day. Um, and, you know, gotten into good spots. We were following the tournament circuit. So we'd go down to like the Bahamas when there was a, you know, PCA tournament, we'd play the cash games on the side, play on yachts. Um, you know, there's always like side games on the periphery of these big tournaments. And I would never really play the tournaments. I never wanted to be known as a good player. It just wasn't my thing. I wanted to play against rich fucking bad players. And that's what I did. Um, and it's weird. Like a lot of guys in the, in the poker world, like just can't wrap their hands around that. Like they're just so fucking stupid. They don't understand that there's like a whole fucking ecosystem outside of their little fucking nerdy poker underworld. That's like really fucking easy to make money at. They just don't have access to it. Cause these poker nerds, you know, you spot them a fucking million miles away. 
Um, but me, I had kind of like the trust fund image and, and that to, you know, fall back on. And plus I played like pretty aggressively too. So people like playing with me. Um, and I had, you know, some kind of a personality. So it was, it was a whole thing. I mean, part of poker is getting into these games and in order to get into these games, people have to want to play against you. They have to, um, look at you as being an action player. There has to be like some kind of sub story. I mean, it's a whole thing. I mean, like I said, a lot of people tried to get in and a lot of people rejected. So, um, getting in was a big piece of, of my success. It's funny because to hear you talk about it, one of my favorite movies is the color of money with Paul Newman and Tom Cruise. And it's the exact same type of mindset. The tournaments are essentially to set up all the off tournament games where you make the fucking real money. It's and funny, I'm listening I, I, to you. It's funny that a fucking non-poker player figures this out in about fucking three minutes, but these fucking poker idiots just still like can't wrap their hands around the fact that I fucking made money. And the funny thing is, I, like, there's so many like legitimate poker players that know for a fact that I made this fucking money too. Like people like, for instance, Andrew Robel, he had 5% of, you know, me, me, when I played Alec Gores, he was like coaching me on the heads up and everything. And so he had 5% of every win. So it literally like tracked out. It was like, you know, 40 ish million dollars that I beat from Alec alone. And, you know, and he had 5% of that. So he saw every fucking wire that came. It's not like up for debate. I like posted these wires. Like, that's why it's like so fucking strange to me. These idiots can't like understand. I mean, I beat Sam for probably $10 million. I mean, I think, I think just my pieces of, um, of Rick Solomon when he played Andy Beal was like around 20 million. Um, and so like right there, there's 70 fucking million dollars I made, you know, and that's not counting the people that I sent to Macau, all the players that I took pieces of, like when I ran my private game, like I was, you know, bringing in a bunch of money in my private game, just everybody that won would tip me 3% of the win three to 5%. And then I had pieces of like some of the good players in the game. I was winning in the game. And it was just like money was coming in from so many different fucking ways. I mean, I made fuck i don't even remember i think we made like 17 million bucks on the sports betting account that i set up my buddy he had like this mit fucking guy figure out a whole algorithm for um for basketball and he basically said like you get an account and i'll give you 30 percent free roll so you get 30 percent of all the wins and you have no downside and so he would he went onto my account and just would be firing on all these fucking games and like i said i think we made like 17 million before they cut us off you know so I, like i had money coming in from that i had money coming in from pieces i mean uh, it was just, there was so many opportunities in gambling to make money when you're surrounded by rich guys and you've got some, you know, good players that you can stake or take pieces of because a lot of these games are playing too big for these poker players to take all their action. So you would have the opportunity to get it at like face value when they were a massive favorite. Um, so, you know, I would just consistently like, you know, bankroll people and do stuff like that. So, um, yeah, was, I made a ton of money. Um, playing poker and staking people in poker. Where do you get more enjoyment out of? Do you get more enjoyment out of the money you win or being able to just fuck people and beat people? Um, I, for me, it was always about the money. You know, I wasn't really a shit talker. I wasn't one of those people that, um, you know, kind of like needled people, none of that. I, I wanted people to want to play with me and I wanted them to like want to gamble with me and I didn't want to like gloat. Like if I won money, I acted like it wasn't a big deal. Um, and the more I acted like it wasn't a big deal, the more they felt like it wasn't a big deal. It's like the people that you didn't want to lose money to was the people that you felt like that money would change their life. So it was always important to me for people to like think that I had more money than I did because then they wouldn't mind losing to me as much, you know? So that was like a part of it too. Um, so for me, man, it was like a fucking, you know, it was a hustle, man. Just like you said, the fucking color of money. Like I want to make the most amount of money, you know, by any means necessary. And, uh, and that's what I did. 
I've always wondered why you don't have a reality show. You check every box that every network would want. Social media following, regular following, controversial, polarizing. Have networks ever come to you? I'm, I'm, I'm sure they five, have. Five words. <laughs> I don't fucking want one. <laughs> That's why. Really? Yeah, no interest, man. What, what the fuck's it going to do for me? Like, I already have money, fame. Like, it's not going to, like, it's it's literally going to be an invasion of privacy and it's not going to move the needle for money in any way, shape, or form. It's not going to move the, mo- the needle for fame. Like, I mean, I'm getting fucking, like, 70, 80 million impressions per post. Like, a hit TV network gets a million views an episode. Like, I get 20 to 45 million views of posts like it's not like it's gonna fucking improve my like you know fucking recognizability like you know what i mean people do that shit to like break out or they do it because like they're fucking washed up and they have nothing else going on like i don't think people that have money fucking are like dying to do reality shows it's just i don't know and i think tv is kind of like a dying thing anyways like i don't feel like people really watch tv much anymore but i mean no platform forget about even if it's just not television twitter tiktok i mean Someone hasn't come to you. Zuckerberg hasn't pulled up the Brinks truck and said, Bilzerian, write your check. What do you want? No, man, I don't think Zuckerberg needs me in any way, shape or form, you know? Um, And so, no, they haven't really offered me shit. I think that's one of the biggest problems with Instagram and Facebook is that they don't offer any money for their people, you know, their celebrities or influencers or whatever. Um, and so I think that's why OnlyFans is thriving so much is because it's like a, a way for people to actually monetize their following in a way other than running like fucking skinny bunny tea ads and shit, you know? So, yeah. When you have that type of following, I mean, the number you just dropped, 70 to 80 million impressions a fucking post is mind-blowing to me. When a brand comes to you, and obviously you have Ignite, and we'll talk about that in a second, but when a brand comes to you and they say, Dan, hey, we want you to post X, Y, Z, you don't have to necessarily tell me the rates for it, but how do you determine the rates when you're bringing that type of, of traffic to a brand? I just say no to all of them. Um, I don't really do like brand promotional posts. I mean, I'm like focused really on Ignite right now. Um, so that's that's my main focus. And that's really all I, that's really the only reason I'm even kind of still posting on Instagram, to be honest with you. Um, We've got these nicotine vapes that are just absolutely fucking murdering it right now. We're in South America. We're in the fucking UK. We're going in the fucking um, EU. We're in the UAE. We're in Armenia. We're going to Russia. Like it's, you know, our vapes are really fucking taking over. And that's really my primary focus right now. I care less about the rest of the stuff, to be honest. Let's talk about the beginning of Ignite. So where does the idea hatch in your mind? How do you begin it? How, how do you build this whole thing? Well, it started really fucking far from where we landed. Um, but initially the thought was weed is legal in Nevada. I want to open a dispensary. I want a bunch of hot chicks working there. I want that to be a thing. Um, and it was just a motherfucker. Like the licenses were super expensive. It was hard to find a partner that like got it. Um, you know, and so I just, you know, kind of like treaded water with that, trying to find a good partner and trying to do that right for about a year or so. And then they were doing a lot of like RTOs, reverse uh, mergers and stuff like that with, with Canadian public shell codes. And that was kind of a popular thing. And I, um, and I partnered with a, with a buddy of mine for that. And we went up to Canada, we did a road show, raised like 10 million bucks. And that was kind of the game plan. And we were going to have a grow and we we're going to, you know, do that whole thing. And then 
our investors were like, oh, we don't really want to do a grow because I think it's a depreciating asset, yada, yada, yada. You're better off just to buy from a grower and then we can operate in multiple places. And, you know, and then, you know, you just basically build the brand. And so that was kind of the direction we were going to go down. But, we, you know, I don't know, it was like going back and forth. I wanted to kind of like give the people their money back, but then they're like, no, you can't do that. So then I went out and raised um, 30 million bucks on my own. And, you know, cause we hadn't really finalized the deal for the, for the Canadian pub coast. So I just kind of like raised the money on my own, started going fucking crazy, got the Ignite house um, and started, you know, throwing parties and, and really just focus on the marketing really before we even had like product to market. I just figured like it would catch up, you know, like, let's just make some fucking noise. Let's get an international brand and then we'll figure out the products. And it was a bit naive, you know, thinking that we could kind of like backfill. I mean, we could, but like we, we probably um, didn't get the max value because it took us longer to get product to market than we anticipated. Not to mention we were really like only focused on a few U S markets due to the cannabis regulations and really the whole time, the answer was nicotine. And that's what I wanted to do. We'd like partnered with the wrong company that had given up their U.S. Nick rights. It was this whole fucking nightmare. Um, but like a year and a half ago, we finally got it right. And we got the right partner. And we've been doing the disposable flavored nicotine vapes. And they've just been fucking crushing it. So that's really like the new business model focus is that and the beverages um, and we pulled out of cannabis completely. Cannabis is like the sh most shit business to fucking be in. Well, um, everybody's in it now. That's a problem. First of all, well, it's they're all saturated. I mean, yeah, they're all losing money. The black market's the only ones that are fucking really doing well. It's really kind of like a survival right now until it federally legalizes, and then you know whoever's left standing will probably do okay. Um, but for me, like, I don't want to wait, like I want to fucking make money and we're doing that Nick. And also Nick is something that we can sell all around the world and I can capitalize on my following. So that's, you know, really what we're focusing on now. How much does your following and your ability to market the product actually drive the results of the sales of the product? Um, you know, it's hard to like quantitatively say that, but I know it has a massive impact because we're getting great reception in like South America. And I see all these people reposting our vapes and they're like smoking the vapes and tagging and like a lot of it's in Spanish. So it's like, you know, it's all over the place. And I see them doing it, you know, in, in Dubai, I see them doing it in the fucking EU. And so it's, it's spreading and it's effective and people want to be a part of the brand. And I think it's one of the few brands that's around that kind of like still has some identity and some balls and it's not, you know, this fucking super fucking woke bullshit where, you know, we're like pandering to everybody and we're worried about this and we don't want to have any white people in the company. And we're like doing anti-white training and apologizing for everything. So I think, you know, that probably resonates with people. I mean, like the state of affairs in the world is such a fucking joke right now that I think um, a brand that actually like has some fucking balls and isn't going to like cave to whatever fucking, you know, new fucking ideal comes out next week um, is probably refreshing. And I think also in South America um, and in some of the foreign countries, they don't really have any real strong brands. So um, we're one of the few brands that people know, you know, like there's Jewel, but that's more of a device. It's not really a brand. Like when you think of like Red Bull, you think of extreme sports, you don't necessarily even think of the product as much as you do, like what the actual brand identity is. And so I think we've got some good brand identity. Um, and it's like, you know, it's a lifestyle brand. It's about, you know, kind of unapologetically being yourself and doing what the fuck you want to do and not worried about, you know, what everybody else is fucking doing and what you're supposed to do. 
Um, and it seems to be resonating pretty well. So what is your greatest learning through the Ignite process, but also your greatest mistake? Man, I've made a lot of mistakes in the beginning, learned a lot for sure. Um, it's been a fucking battle. I mean, I thought it was going to be a lot easier than it was. Um, you know, we were fucking generating all this hysteria and we had all this momentum and this and that. And it's just like, really weren't capitalizing on it. Like I said, because we just didn't have product to market. We weren't in enough places. Like people just wanted to buy, but they couldn't buy. Um, and so that's why the nicotine's just done so well is because we can get it to market. We can get it out to all the foreign countries. People can buy it. It's a great device. It's got the lowest failure rate in the industry. Um, and yeah, so, you know, you can have, you can have a fucking great brand, but if you don't have products to market, if you don't have that shelf space, you're never going to do well, you know, and getting that shelf space a lot harder than I previously anticipated. So yeah, it's been, been a lot of learning. You talk in the book about having two heart attacks before 32 years old. And I mean, I'm just thinking to myself, listen, I had a great twenties, but I never had any heart attacks, knock on wood. How fucking crazy did it get to drive you to, to actually have heart attacks? Man, I was like a four day bender. Um, I was snowboarding and I'd been partying and, you know, was at a strip club and ended up banging the stripper. And I just like took way too much Viagra and never taken Viagra before. It was just a perfect storm of dehydration. I was on this horse steroid, which probably gave me fucking too high a red blood cell count. I mean, fuck, man, you could have thrown darts at a fucking board for the reasons and probably been right fucking nine out of 10 times. I mean, I have no, I mean, I'm sure all these things contributed. Um, but yeah, it was an eye opener, man. Um, it was definitely a fucking eye opener. I thought I was bulletproof. You know, I'd done so much crazy shit in the military and been through so I mean, I'd stayed up for five and a half days straight with no fucking sleep, run 144 miles total throughout the week with boats and telephone poles and gotten hypothermia. And you know what I mean? Done all this shit that I'm just like, well, fuck, a little Coke's not going to kill me. You know, fucking some stripper's not going to, you know what I mean? Like all this stuff just seemed like little road bumps um but you know when i was in the military I obviously wasn't on drugs and you know drugs you know especially when combined with other ones can uh can fucking have negative effects as i saw so um it was an eye-opener and i stopped doing viagra after that um that was the one and only time i'd taken viagra <laughs> how do you know you're having a heart attack like at what moment were you like shit i'm having a heart attack i didn't know i, I had no idea in fact um i you know, I had some pain in my shoulder and I was like trying to do push-ups. I like fucking called the family doc. I had no clue. Like heart attack didn't enter into the realm of fucking possibility of things. In fact, like so much so that when I was in the, in the, um, whatever the ER or whatever that waiting room was, like I offered the, the lady $10,000, like, let me see a fucking doctor. And she wouldn't let me see a doctor. I'm like, I'm having a heart. Like I gave her the signs. Like I was having a hard time breathing. Like all the stuff were like, if I had been 20 years older, they would have like admitted me immediately been like, Oh, this guy's probably had nobody even considered it. I was the youngest guy ever admitted to the hospital that ever had a heart attack. They said, um, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it was as much of a surprise to me as it was for them. I think. So when you go through that, what's your mindset after that, besides the no Viagra rule, which I have to ask you, how the fuck can you sleep with all these women without any type of assistance? Like what yeah, the hell was are you? and testosterone and stem cells. <laughs> so don't, <laughs> don't worry, I have assistance. I've got all the assistance. I've got everything. That's the golden life. triangle right there. Yeah, it certainly wasn't some fucking great genetic fucking mutation that I had. It was, no, it's drugs. Yeah. So when you switch out of that, 
do you have this kind of like epiphany where you're like, all right, I've got to shift my life around. I can't be doing this besides the Viagra part of it. Or were you kind of like, shit, whatever, I got through this. Let's keep trucking. Yeah, get back on the <laughs> <fucking> horse. <laughs> there, there was about a fucking two-day downtime. I, I even fucked my ex-girlfriend in the hospital. I got high and I banged her with the fucking cords hanging out. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, a lot of bad decisions, but, you know, fuck. What are you gonna do? I was, I mean, it was like they they like told me I had to take these pills for the rest of my life. I like looked at all this shit. I'm just like, you know what? Fuck that. I'm just like, if I die, die. I'm not taking all these fucking pills like forever. Like no fucking chance. And I didn't, and I'm still here. So, so you continue with the partying. You continue going. How do you maintain this whole thing? Look, I'm 43 years old, man. I had a great 20s and a really great 30s. I'm at a point like you're, you're a little younger than me, but I'm at a point where I'm like, I can do maybe one night, maybe two in a row and I'm shut down. How are you able to actually maintain this type of stamina to continue to do what you do? Well, I don't party as much as people think that I do. I think that's probably a common misconception. I fuck a lot, but I'm not like always getting drunk and fucking doing ecstasy and shit. You know, like for me, um, I mean, I've done an XC like a handful of times my whole life. Um, I've drank probably, I don't know, man, in my whole life, probably less than like 40 or 50 times, like my whole life. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, 50. I'd say probably under 50 if I had to guess. Because um, there was years when I didn't drink once in the whole year. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I, I just, I don't get fucked up as much as people think. I mean, smoking weed and fucking girls is like not really that hard to maintain um and that was a lot of my adult life was just getting high having sex working out showering eating you know pretty healthy believe it or not you know fame is such a hard thing to handle dan so when you become famous and again you're going through this orgy type lifestyle that you've built how do you meet someone real like you've had girlfriends but how do you know when someone's in it for you versus the instagram fame versus the money versus the whatever it's hard, man. It's, and it's not just with women, it's hard on all sides. You know, everybody seems to want something from you. The more you have to offer, you know, the more you've got to kind of have your guard up a little bit. Um, and it's human nature. Look, like when I was coming up, I wanted fucking money from rich guys too. You know, I get it. Um, it's, it's normal. You see a guy with a lot of money, you see a guy with a lot of girls, you're like, I want some of that, you know, it's just common. But so I guess, um, it's more isolating than anything, but, um, it's, you know, you just have to kind of use your judge of character. I mean, that was one of the things that I, you know, got pretty good at playing poker was figuring out, you know, fucking people's intentions, you know, whether or not they're being honest, you know, just, you're just reading people all the time. You're constantly looking at somebody, you're fucking looking them in the eye, you're looking at their fucking body language, you know, and you're seeing it too. Like when you make that fucking big call and you're like, you have a feeling like the guy's full of shit and you make that call and he's is full of shit or he's not full of shit. Like you process all that information, you know? So every time, and there's a lot of fucking money on the line, there's a lot at stake, right? So you pay attention, you pay very close attention. And when you're wrong, you remember you're fucking wrong. And when you're right, you remember you're right, you know? And so if you do this long enough, you start to figure people out. And I think, you know, part of what I wrote in the book was, you know, the human psychology of this, like why women do the things that they do, why certain things work, you know, like, for instance, there was a girl that like, I really wanted to bang. And when I, you know, stopped caring and started fucking some other girls and actually like bang some girls like pretty much in front of her, that's when I ended up fucking her. And like most people are like, oh, that would never work, you know, but they don't understand like the psychology of it. 
And for a super hot girl, like the thing that she sees the least is probably a guy that doesn't care, you know? So when you truly don't care and when you do things that show that you don't care, it actually makes them more interested in you than when you do what every other fucking guy does and cater to them and try and like, you know, do the nice guy bullshit. I'm not saying be an asshole to women. I'm just saying like, understand that like pandering to them and like, you know, doing all this stuff, they see right through it. They know like your motivation is to stick your dick in them. So if you're doing all these fucking things for that objective, it doesn't make you a nice guy. It means you're fucking, you know, like really desperate or you really want it bad enough. Right. So all these positive things that you do that in your eyes seem to be positive are actually fucking like held against you because it just shows like how much you're willing to do to get laid. And for a woman that's like constantly being hit on, that's actually a negative. So there's a lot of, you know, things that I think have benefited from playing so much poker and, you know, the psychology and reading people is probably top of the list. Was there ever anyone throughout this journey who you thought could have been the one where you were like, this might be the person that I actually could pull the trigger on? Yeah. Jessa, I gave her, you know, a couple chapters in the book. She was definitely my first love. The first girl that I like really connected with on a bunch of different levels. Um, She's unfortunately turned out to be a fucking train wreck, but uh, she had all the fucking tools, man. She was super hot. She was super smart. She was really witty, fun to hang out with, good personality. Um, she, you know, she had all like the hardest things to get and then everything else kind of sucked, but the, the really important shit, she had that unlocked. So that was a tough one. You know, that one definitely, uh, definitely stung. When you were writing the book, because, and we were joking at the beginning of this interview that page six was like too controversial, but that's who you are. You're going to put it all out there. When you're writing the book, were there ever moments where you're like, well, maybe this might be going too far, or I shouldn't name this person, or you were just like, fuck it. I'm Bill Zarian and I'm going with it. Um, uh, yeah, there's like a couple. So some of the names, like I actually excluded one celebrity name, which I was like kind of bummed out about because it actually made the story way fucking better. Cause I was like in my closet, it's like 2000, I don't know, 14 or 15. And I'm in there like, you know, hooking up with these two chicks and I like look over and this fucking big A-list celebrity is getting his dick sucked in the fucking, in my dark ass closet, wearing sunglasses. And it was just like a lot funnier because it was him, but I didn't really like want to put him on blast, you know? And so I didn't. Um, but for the most part, like if the names are applicable and they matter and people would recognize them, like I just leave them in there, you know, cause I tell all my fucking bad shit too. So it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not like ratting people out, but at the same time, like I got to tell my story, you know? And like, I don't know, get like getting Bieber laid and can, you know, was a fucking, you know, kind of a, you know, important piece, you know? So like, I don't know, there's like some people I named, but it's not like, I don't know, malicious or whatever. It's just because I want to tell my story and, you know, they're, you know, because it was him, it was interesting. If it was some fucking random dude that I fucking, you know, got laid, it wouldn't matter. Right. So there was sometimes, um, and then with the girls, um, I changed some names, um, just because there wasn't really any benefit from putting their name in. And I didn't, you know, some of them are fucking married, some of them kids, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to like ruin people's lives, you know, um, to tell my story if I don't have to. So, um, yeah, I tried to be like, you know, respectful of people, but at the same time, like I said, I have to tell the fucking story. So that would be hilarious. Like Jess in Iowa somewhere, all of a sudden your book is out and the husband's reading and he's like, wait, what the fuck? Oh, there's a hundred percent some of that shit in there for sure. Like, and there's girls that I named that like I was fucking that had boyfriends for sure. And you know, there was definitely, definitely going to be some fucking turmoil because of this, no two ways about it, but I don't know, man, there was like important lessons in there too. And at the end of the day, like I've always been like a super honest guy. So I don't really like, 
I don't know. Like for me, I don't have a lot of remorse for people that are like cheating and lying and doing the fucked up shit. Cause like I said, I just always wore that shit on my sleeve. And the one thing I asked for was honesty. And I saw girls do so much fucked up shit, man. Like there's one girl that came on vacation and she was like, you know, basically almost naked on the plane before we even got to my place. And we're like at my house and she's like, Oh, I want, I want to watch you fuck this girl. And I was like, okay, cool. So I'm fucking this girl in my theater and she's watching. She's like, Oh, like, I want you to come my face. I'm like, okay, you know, so I'm fucking this chick. She's like, don't forget. I'm like, don't worry. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm still fucking this girl. And then, you know, like finally she's like, you know, fucking insisting I come on her face. I'm like, okay, cool. So do. And like, meanwhile, her boyfriend's like texting her, fucking blowing her phone up. She finally ends up blocking the guy, fucks me later that night. And then like, you know, fucks me again the next day and like, you know, crazy shit and whatever. And then she like unblocks him on day three and is like, you know, have you fed the dog? And it was just like, what the fuck, man? This girl's like cold as ice. And then like on the way home, um, she's like, I want to fuck you again. I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, just tell your boyfriend the flight's delayed or something. I don't know, you know? And so she like texting this guy and he's like texting my assistant at the same time. And my assistant's like, no, the flight's on time, you know? And so I finally like, we figured out that it was my fucking idiot assistant texting this fucking guy, like chucked the fucking pillow at his head. And I was like, stop fucking texting people. And, um, and so anyway, so he was like camped out in front of my house and like sent her a picture of the car, like going into the driveway. And she still fucked me even, even with this guy, like knowing, you know, it's like, it's just crazy, you know? And, and, and like, I don't know, man, then I was like on a yacht in, in, in where the fuck was I? I was, um, it's off the Amalfi coast somewhere. Um, and she texted me, she was like out there with her fucking boyfriend. She's like, Hey, like, I want to come see you. I'm like, I'm on a boat. She's like, well, could I helicopter onto the boat? I'm like, no, probably not. You know, <laughs> like, she's like, what is it? A small boat? I'm like, no, it's like 175 feet. We don't have a fucking helipad. And I don't know my fucking coordinates anyways. Like, this is just ridiculous. And then like three days later, she blocks me. And then two days after that, there's like an engagement ring posted on her fucking Instagram. Like it was just, you know, you just see shit like that. You're just like, God damn, you know, like, fuck, I would not want to be that guy. Um, and it was just, there's just so many girls that would do fucked up shit like that. Like literally be like texting their boyfriend, you know, while I'm banging them or just fucking, I don't know, man, just crazy shit. And like I say in the book, I kind of like stopped hooking up with girls that had boyfriends unless like they were cheating on them anyways. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Hard to trust. The one thing I haven't touched on, and it was a question that I was thinking about, which is the one thing that people may not realize about Dan Bill about Dan Bilzerian, but I think I realize what it is. Behind all of this, you're actually kind of a genius in terms of building businesses, being an entrepreneur, understanding branding, understanding marketing. Do you ever feel like people underestimate you? for all the good qualities that you have as a businessman because of what you've built as a public persona. Yeah. I mean, I've been underestimated my whole life and I actually made a career out of it. You know, like <laughs> my poker career was made off of people underestimating me and thinking that I was a rich idiot. And, you know, so I kind of like played that fucking role, you know? And so I, I think one of the reasons why I was successful is to understand what resonates with people. I understand like, cause part of poker also is like understanding, like, how does he view me? Like, what do I think that he has? And then what do I think that he thinks that I think that he has, you know, and like you go, there's like levels to this shit, you know, like how I perceive you and then how I believe that you perceive me. And so there's, there's a lot of that, you know, so you kind of have to like get in people's heads 
And I think, you know, part of the social media stuff is like just understanding like what resonates with people, what people want to see, you know, and you see that when you get the feedback and you get instant feedback, you know, when you post something, you get the likes, you get the comments, you get, you know, the whatever. And so you're able to like figure out like, okay, what do people want to see? You know, cause to me, I, and I would, I wouldn't just post based on that. You know, like I posted a lot of shit that I knew wasn't going to do well because I just thought it was cool. You know, like some of the coolest shit I've done, like I surfed some fucking 30 foot waves in Kauai, I fucking jumped the trophy truck, you know, like a million dollar truck. And like, I've done some fucking really cool shit, stuff that I think is really cool, but that people just really don't give a fuck about. And it's just kind of funny to me, you know, they see big tits and they just like smash the like button, but you know, you're like risking your life. You're doing some fucking badass adrenaline shit. And they're just like, ah, whatever, you know, like I've seen cooler, you know? And so, um, yeah, it's, you know, it was a learning process, but I think I, you know, got pretty good at it. What's the goal. What's the end goal of this whole game for you? Um, I want to make ignite super fucking successful. And then I want to sell it and just focus on things that make me happy, you know, like down the line sell the company and just, you know, do shit that makes me happy. What makes you happy? Um, a lot of things, um, hanging out with my buddies, um, helping people out, um, traveling, uh, you know, I like all the, you know, sports stuff, the free diving, the MMA, the, um, surfing, you know, just stuff that doesn't really cost a lot of money surprisingly. So, um, yeah, I don't know why I need to make all the fucking money. I just, I don't know. For me, it's a milestone. Like, I really want to become a billionaire and then just literally stop. Because I've spent so much of my life focusing on, like, accumulating wealth. And I think, like, once I get past a billion dollars, I think then I can just really put that one to bed. Kind of like I did with the chicks a little bit. Not that I'm, like, done fucking girls. But I've, like, proven to myself that, like, okay, dude, you can get pussy. You know, like, I get it. <laughs> like, you had a perceived lack when you're younger, you've climbed the mountain a lot, you know, a lot of fucking times. So you've done that, you know, and then the social media thing, like I wanted to get famous and I fucking did that, you know? So there's a lot of things that I like set out to do that I like feel like I really fucking did. And I like took the end of the earth. Um, the money for some reason, I, I don't know. Like I know the money is not even directly correlated with happiness, but I just see this opportunity to fucking do really well. And I, I want to just, you know, fucking stay till the job is done and i want to make you know like i said over a billion dollars and i want to um just not ever focus on money again i want to talk to you about the ufc before we go because i'm a huge ufc fan what are your thoughts about some of the fighters today who are some of your favorites how did you become a lover of the ufc tell me it all i mean i, I watched ufc one you know i remember when it started so um i was doing judo training in uh in tampa florida and this was in I started doing that in like 1998 and that was around about the time when the UFC was, you know, starting. And I just, I don't know, man, I've been in it from the very beginning. It was always fascinating to me. Like, you know, you grow up, it's like who would win in a fight, Superman or Batman, you know, or whatever. Right. So you're like, you know, who would win in the fight, the fucking, you know, the, the bear, or the fucking silverback, who would win in the fight, the sumo wrestler, or the fucking karate kid. Like you just always, as a kid, ask yourself these things. And it was like the one sport where it kind of like answered those fucking questions. Right. Like, what is the best, you know, form of self-defense? You have all these fucking like Taekwondo guys like talking about how fucking badass they were. But then like you get to see it like, oh, is this guy badass or is he just talking shit? You know, like that's where the fucking rubber meets the road. And you see, you know, people going there, you know, in the beginning, they didn't, I don't even think they had weight classes. They didn't have rounds, you know, so it was like about as close to a fucking street fight as you were going to get. And it was just extremely interesting to me. Um, 
you know, I'm surprised it took so long for it to take off, but Dana, you know, did a really good job with that. Um, I would say the one thing the sport's suffering from the most, in my opinion, right now is just kind of like everybody's gotten so good that it's hard to have guys that you've been like rooting for for a while. You know, like the old Anderson Silva's, the old GSP's, the fucking, you know, the guys that were like on top for a long, long fucking time, Mighty Mouse, whatever. There's like so many of these guys that were just great and they were, you know, fucking, I don't know, man, they were just on top for a long period of time, uncontested. And I feel like the sport is missing that now because everybody's so fucking good that like anybody on a good day could beat you know the fucking best guy on his bad day kind of shit you know and so it's like is the guy gonna have a bad day is he gonna get unlucky um i'm not saying there's not greats in the sport right now i'm just saying like there isn't dominance in my opinion like there was in the past just because everybody's gotten so good um and so i would say that that would be the one thing um that's you know Oh, that's tougher is just that you know you don't really have as many like household names you know other than like conor mcgregor and you know john jones who's been having you know issue after issue yeah i mean the two that i love are kamaru usman and francis ngano obviously those guys are absolute assassins they're yeah, Usman's a beast yeah i forgot about him yeah no he's he's a fucking monster he you know he's he's in the realm of those fucking greats so you know i guess i guess i stand corrected he's definitely definitely up there Dan, this has been an absolute pleasure. The book is called The Setup. Of course, Ignite and everything you're doing with that company is incredible. And you are a man of myth, a legend, man. I can tell you that every guy in my community in New York, and I'm from Philly, they're kind of just like in awe of you to a certain degree, because again, you have created this aura of what every guy wants, whether they may want it or not want it, but the picturesque part of it seems to be what every guy wants. And you did kind of the uh, the visual creation of it for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I did what I set out to do. You know, I really fucking did. And I did, and I took it to the end of the earth. And I think the book will um, be very interesting for all those people, you know, that have been watching the journey and kind of like, you know, wondering what I'm like, because this really like, you know, kind of like the emperor has no clothes type of thing. I just like talk about all the embarrassing shit, the good, the bad, and the ugly in there. So you really get the full picture and see, you know, where I started and where I, where I landed and how I got there and um, what I learned along the way. So I think, you know, for the fucking people that have been, you know, watching the journey, I think it'll be even more interesting because they've been wondering for so long, you know, <laughs> Dan, it's been an awesome chat, man. Thanks for a great hour, brother. Cool. Enjoy the book. See you brother. All right, bud. Take care. All right, folks, that was the king of Instagram, Dan Bilzerian. Make sure to check out his new book, The Setup, and of course, check out his company, Ignite. Just, just fascinating to hear this guy's journey and how he's been able to just, I guess, make tens of millions, hundreds of millions. No one even knows. This guy's like this mystery wrapped in an enigma. It's, it's just fascinating. Hasn't been anyone like him, God, that I can think of in like 20 years. And the dude's built an empire, so good for him. Awesome chat with Bilzerian. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. We are back next Tuesday with another array of great, great interview guests. In the meantime, subscribe, rate, follow us on social media. Endless Hustle on Twitter is at Endless Double Underscore Hustle. On Instagram at Endless Hustle Pod. Me personally, I am at Arthur Kate on Twitter at It's Me Arthur Kate on Instagram. We'll see you next Tuesday. Enjoy your weekend. Keep endlessly hustling. And thanks as always for listening and watching.